The notes are in the bulletin. The 110th Psalm. Now oftentimes as we study the Bible, and I, I said something even earlier today as we were singing, that all the scriptures speak of Christ. And sometimes it's harder to see Christ in the Old Testament. Sometimes you've, you've got to do some work pushing it through into the New Covenant. How does this sacrifice, how does this law predict, prepare us for Christ? And other times it's much clearer. And this morning, in the short seven-verse psalm, Psalm 110, I think we see one of the most clear, striking, exalted, glorious pictures of our Lord and Savior. Last week, in a single week, we tried to cover 43 verses. I'll leave it up to you to decide how well. And this week, with seven verses, we're actually only going to look at the first three. We're going to do Psalm 110 over two weeks. There's simply so much here. But let's, let's read Psalm 110 together. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning. And the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 110. This is, this psalm is the single most cited psalm, passage of the Old Testament in the entire New Testament. Specifically, verses 1 and 4. If you put them together, they are the most quoted and referenced text in the entire New Testament. The New Testament writers seem to think there's a lot we can learn about Jesus. There's a lot we can learn about our Messiah here. And so whereas last week we sped through 43 verses, this week we're going to slow down a little bit and dig deep. Uh, I don't know if you, if you guys ever look at those, about 10, 12 years ago, they had these posters, the 3D posters. You have to look at them just a certain way, and then an image pops out. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone? Okay. And you, have, you ever had the frustration of trying to look and trying to look, and all your friends can see it. It's supposed to be a dog, you know, or it's supposed to be a beach ball, and you're looking at it, and you're squinting, and you can't see it. Well, sometimes... As I'm trying to look back at the Old Testament, at, at passages being cited in the New Testament, I'll admit in my weakness and in my frailty, sometimes that looks like what's going on. Well, apparently Matthew says this is about Jesus. Yeah, and, and I do believe it's there. I don't believe the New Testament plays fast and loose with the text, but one of the things I want to do this week in slowing down is let's see if it's there ourselves. Again, sometimes the New Testament can sort of serve as the answer key. You know, you've got a math book, and you, you just go to the back and look at the answer. And so you don't have to work through a passage like this. You can just go to, you know, Hebrews. You can just go to Matthew, and okay, that's the answer. And that's good. That's a blessing. It, it helps us from, from reaching wrong conclusions. The answer key is helpful. But sometimes it's also helpful to do the math. How, how do they do this? I mean, after all, the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament arguing showing us 
what should be there. They're making an argument. They're, they're building a case. It's not as though Matthew or the author of Hebrews or, or Jesus is saying, just take my word, this is what it means. They expect us to be able to see it. And so this week, we're just going to deal with the first three verses of Psalm 110. And we're going to try to see if the things the New Testament says are there, are there. We're going to see if we can see it in Psalm 110's own right. And then, at each point, we'll jump to the New Covenant, to the New Testament, and confirm, possibly broaden our answers. So that's, that's the plan. Psalm 110 is, is divided around two great oracles of Yahweh the Lord. Verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, and then you get what follows. And verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And so we're going to deal with the first oracle, the first speech of Yahweh. And next week, God willing, we will deal with the second part. The other, the other thing that's spectacular about this psalm is out of all the Messianic psalms, it's probably the most focused. What I mean is this. Oftentimes, the psalms, especially the ones David writes, we find the events of David's life foreshadow, predict, are a type of the events of Christ's life. So in Psalm 22, David is, is suffering. David is betrayed. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we learn just as David experienced suffering and David experienced betrayal, so much more will his son, his greater son. But here, David is hardly in view. Um, so instead of sometimes with Messianic Psalms, you've got to sort of figure out what if this is talking about David and what if this ultimately is about Christ. But we'll see here this is almost exclusively about Christ. And so it's one of the clearest messianic psalms. So we're going to begin our, our Bible study now, looking at the first oracle, the enthronement of the king, verses 1 to 3. The enthronement of the king. We're going to look at it in four points. A point on the title, and then a point on each one of the three verses. Now you'll note when I read Psalm 110, I began with the title. And, that, and that's significant. The title, not the one that your Bible may put in. My ESV gives its own little title, sit at my right hand. That, that's not part of the text. But where you see a psalm of David, that is. Despite the fact that some um, more liberal scholars will question the authenticity of the psalm titles, all of our earliest psalm texts have titles. And as we'll see this morning, the interpretation of Psalm 110 hinges on the authenticity of the title. And Jesus affirms its authenticity. If this is a subject you want to go any further with, I don't know if anyone does, Daniel, Pastor Daniel, did his THM thesis in part on the validity and authenticity of the psalm titles. So you could ask him any further questions. I will refer them to him. So let's look in. Who is this we're talking about? I've been telling you this is a Christological messianic psalm. Who is this talking about? And the psalm title is key. A psalm of David the Lord said to my Lord, and specifically, who is this Lord? Not in caps. In most economies of English translations, the translators will translate the divine name, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, as Lord, all caps. That's the most common um, usage. So when your Bible has Lord in all caps, what they're telling you is in the Hebrew, Yahweh is the word. So the first Lord, there in verse 1, is all caps. The second is not which is what they use to translate the Hebrew Adonai. So Yahweh says to my Adonai. I'm trying to figure out who is this Adonai, who is this Lord. And the reason why this is key, the psalm title is this. If we didn't know who the author was, we could think to ourselves, well, perhaps this is some lowly courtier 
some lowly court official, and he's speaking, granted in slightly inflated terms and slightly over-the-top terms, but not unreasonable terms, of David. And so if this is some court official, what he's saying then is, you know, the Lord God said to my Lord, the king. And then the psalm would just be, oh, David. But that can't be, can it? Why is that? Because this is the psalm of David. The only role David takes in this psalm is as the one passing it on to us. We're watching an overheard conversation that David is not part of. He's privy to it. He's present for it, but he's not participating in it. And so whoever this Lord is that David's talking about, it's not him because he's my Lord. You get that? He's my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, this can't be David. And as, as we go through the rest of the psalm, what will become clear, though, is we are referring to a Davidic descendant. This is using the language and building upon the themes of the Davidic covenant and kingship. And so what's strange then about this and striking is that in the, in the Hebrew mindset, the descendant is always lesser than the ancestor, always. We don't live in a culture that, that honors age very much. I mean, if you're old, you probably don't know what email is. And so you couldn't be, you know. But that's not the way they thought then. And so for David to speak about one of his descendants and call him Lord is striking. So who is this one? And what you find as you read your Bible is that is, although God made a promise of a perpetual dynasty to David... As, as this perpetual dynasty gets developed, and we'll look, take a look at Psalm 2 in a little bit, it becomes clear that coming along the pike of these Davidic kings is someone special. And here, getting focused in even more clearly, whoever this coming Davidic king is, he's so great that David himself can call him Lord. Not only that, but look at the honor he's given in the rest of verse 1. The Lord God, Yahweh, tells him to sit at his right hand. Now understand that. To be at someone's right hand is to be nearly their equal. It's to rule with God. That The priests entered into a holy, holy place with fear. The high priest, once a year for a few minutes, would enter into God's presence and he'd offer a sacrifice. Guess what he didn't do? He didn't take a seat. There's a sense of, of peership, that whoever this one is who's sitting next to the Lord God is his peer. He isn't standing in front of the God of the universe. He isn't bowing down in worship to the God of the universe. He is sitting at his right hand. And so what becomes clear as this comes together is this person, whoever this is, is divine. He is divine. This is God. And even though this isn't fully developed here, what we now know with New Testament eyes is this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. But I want you to see how that's here in the text. Because if you jump over to Matthew, that is precisely the, the currency that Jesus makes of this. Go to Matthew 22, 42 to 45. <clears throat> So I want you to see that it's here in the text, and I want you to show, let's check our answers with the answer key. Is this, in fact, the conclusions the New Testament and Jesus draw from this psalm? Or am I making too much out of a psalm title? Matthew 22, verse 42 to 45. Jesus says, speaking to the Pharisees, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, 
Why is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they have no answer. They're silenced. In fact, they don't ask him any more questions from here on. Jesus makes this exact point. See, the, the, the Jews and the Pharisees were expecting a Messiah to come, an anointed one, a king. But surely he wasn't going to be greater than David. I mean, David's the one who received the kingly covenant, after all. David was the man who was after God's own heart. David was the man who wrote most of the Psalms. And Jesus points out to them something obvious in the text. He's not pulling a magic trick here. He's showing them something they should have seen, something we can see, that by virtue of the title, which Jesus affirms as valid, this can't be David. This is some David descendant who is David's son, yet David's Lord. That's the line we sing in Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. David's son, yet David's Lord. Or as some theologians put it, great David's greater son. And in, in three of the four Gospels, this exact point is made. And so just think how much information is, is, is found in this psalm based simply on the psalm title. I'll plead with you when you read your Bible and you read the book of Psalms, read the titles. The, the, the text titles, not the ones your translation puts in, but the actual titles, they're important. Here, the entire meaning of this t- psalm is determined by the psalm title. So who is this about? Who is this Lord? He is divine. And another clue that he's divine, look down at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So whoever this being is, is greater than David. He's apparently God's peer. He's sitting in the presence of the God of the universe, and he's, we'll see next week, going to receive a priesthood that will endure forever. He's an eternal being sitting at God's right hand. You see how this starts to piece together? So this is about Christ. We now know that from the new covenant. This is about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is about his enthronement as king. Great David's greater son. Second thing we're to look at. There are two commands given by the Lord, Yahweh, to Adonai, the Lord. The first is in verse 1, is sit at my right hand. Then point C, the second is rule, in verse 2, in the midst of your enemies. So what, what does the living God say to the Lord? Tells him to take a seat, tells him to sit. Sit at my right hand. And, and again, let's not underestimate the audacity, the, the boldness of this statement. There, there was an earthly image of the heavenly holy place where God's presence dwelt, and it was holy. It was the holy of holies. And the holy of holies on earth was the picture, the earthly picture of the heavenly holy of holies. And we already spoke about how no one got to go in. The priests only got to go to the holy place. One guy once a year for a few minutes got to enter into the holy of holies, not sitting, doing his sacrifices, his sprinkling, and getting out. And here the living God says to the Lord, enter in and sit my throne. It's striking. This is the language of, of coronation. This is the language of someone becoming a king. This person is sharing in God's rule. And I just want to notice three things from this. One, we have the notion of a completion of work. We don't know exactly what this Lord was doing previously, but whatever it is, he's told to stop and to wait until something happens. 
Stop what you're doing. Whatever that activity is, the song doesn't tell us. Stop what you're doing. Come up here and sit. Which is very interesting. In the, in the New Testament, much is made of that point itself. Listen to the language of Hebrews 10, 11 to 13. Contrasting Jesus with the priests of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until the time his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So in, 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 in principle in the psalm is this notion of a ceasing from work, and the New Testament makes a big deal of that. We don't know what that work is. We don't know what he was doing beforehand. We just know there's a shift from whatever he was doing to sitting and waiting. Completion of work. This, this coronation, in other words, is, is going to be a pause, if you will, until something happens. Second, we see that this is the position of highest honor. I've spoken to this already, but there is no higher seat in the universe than the right hand of the living God. Um, to be someone's right-hand man, we still have that expression, but in, in, in a culture with kings, the one who sat at the king's right hand was the highest, most exalted person. And so this Messiah, this coming Davidic king, would receive the highest honor. And that's exactly, when we go to the New Testament, what we find. And it's all because of his completed work. Listen to Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given to him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on earth or unto the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The highest position. And yes, the, the, the cross... And the sacrifice, well, the sacrifice might be. The cross is not clearly in view in Psalm 110, but this notion that this, this Messiah, this king figure, will be called up, will be invited up, will enter into his throne, having finished doing something and entering into a, a waiting period, is there. Another thing is he doesn't earn his throne by inheritance, he doesn't earn his throne by his dad dying. He doesn't seize his throne. It is given to him. In this sense, it's very similar to David. David as a king didn't, didn't win a battle to become king. He, didn't, um, he was not born into a kingly family. He was made king by divine fiat. Just an appointment of the Lord. And here, this figure as well is simply enthroned by a free act of God. One more thing to remember here is this. Oftentimes, as Christians, we find it very comfortable to think of Jesus as the humbled Messiah. And there is a glory in the humbled Messiah. You know what I mean? The Messiah who lived and veiled his glory. The Messiah who wouldn't have stood out in a crowd until he began to speak. The Messiah that we find in the Gospels prior to the resurrection. That Jesus is approachable. I mean, after all... The, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, ate at the Last Supper with his head in Jesus' side. This is the Jesus you might imagine giving a hug. 
That is not the Lord anymore. He is the exalted Lord. Let us not forget that in Revelation chapter 1, when the same disciple who reclined with his head at Jesus' side sees the resurrected, risen, glorified, or enthroned Lord, he falls down on his face as if dead. He does not run up to Jesus and give him a high five. No more, no longer is Jesus humbled. No longer is he made a little lower than the angels. And it would be good for us to remember and to worship and to live, keeping that in mind. I don't tend to fear humble Jesus, earthly Jesus. But when I look at the the Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, when I look at the Jesus, the exalted Lord of glory, then I start taking him a fair bit more seriously. And, and this is the position he has now. What, what is predicted in Psalm 110 has taken place. It took place at the resurrection. It took place at the ascension. It took place at the cross. Jesus enters into his kingship. He enters into his throne. Yes, on the one hand, he is born king of the Jews, but he is enthroned as king and given the name that is above every name by virtue of his work on the cross, the resurrection, and ultimately the ascension. And finally, and our first point here, what is he doing? He's awaiting his enemies' utter defeat. He is awaiting his enemies' utter defeat. Now again, a phrase is used here that may not be common to us, till your enemies are made a footstool. What does that mean? Well, it's a colloquialism, a figure of speech that apparently started from Joshua 10.24, when Joshua defeated some of the kings of Canaan. Listen to this, Joshua 10.24. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near, put their feet on their necks. It is the sign of ultimate dominion. I mean, nothing could be more humbling. A person could be no more base than to be someone who was a king to now have someone's foot on your neck. And it's a symbol, a symbolic picture for all of Israel to see that Joshua, by the Lord's aid, the Lord had given a victory to Israel, and they had been utterly victorious. And that utter victory seen in Joshua and his men standing with their feet on the necks of these kings. So that notion of making an enemy, your enemies your footstool, this vivid word picture shows up. This is an utter defeat. This isn't a partial victory. This isn't a slim win. This isn't God and Satan having a chess match and God's going to just eke out a win at the end. This is total victory. Total victory. But what's striking to me is he's waiting. You know, one of the tensions we can have as Christians is, okay, is Jesus ruling now or is he not? And on the one hand, we have to say, yes, he's ruling now. He's been enthroned. He's received the name that is above all names. Well, if he's ruling now, why is there sin in the world? If he's ruling now, why is there suffering in the world? If he's ruling now, why is there death? Well, because he's ruling now, yes, but not like he will rule. There's a now, not yet element to Christian theology. Um, Jesus is enthroned as king, but he is not ruling as he will rule. He is waiting And again, this is echoed by events again in David's own life. Remember, David was anointed king by Samuel in 1 Samuel. Does he immediately start acting like king? No. Even though David is the Lord's anointed, even though David has been coronated by God, God sent his prophet to coronate David, David runs around as best as we can piece it together for 40 years while Saul is functional king. 
And David expressed great patience. He would not reach out and strike down Saul. He had two opportunities, and he waited on God to give him his kingdom. That's the exact situation Jesus is in. Jesus has been inaugurated as king. Jesus has been made king, and yet he is waiting. His father says, come up here and sit in this position of honor until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's a tremendous mark of patience and humility of our Lord. You know, so often, we want to vindicate ourselves. So often, we don't want to be mistreated. We don't want to put up with stuff, and so we exert our rights, and we, we push back. Here is the Lord of glory waiting. And every day, Jesus waits while people take his name in vain, while people curse him, while people blaspheme him, and he awaits his Father's timetable. Should we not be willing to do likewise? Should we not be willing to set aside our rights? Should we not be willing to suffer mistreatment? Should we not be willing to wait on God's timetable for our vindication? Or must we enact it ourselves? Must we be the ones who bring our kingdom into this world? Or can we wait on God? There's a great lesson here of trusting the Lord. He's waiting. He's ruling now, but not like he will rule when he comes in power. And so... Our next point now, we've moved from the sit, come up and sit, to the rule. And, and ironically, even though he's sitting and awaiting, he's still ruling. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. And here we get the clear reference that we know we're talking about a Davidic king. This rule is going to come from Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. And so this is a Davidic king. This is, this is a kingly psalm. Turn, turn to 2 Samuel 7. Now, one of the reasons why we're only looking at three verses is to really understand what's being said here. We've got to go to some antecedent scripture. The, the, the writer of Psalm 110, David, assumes he has in his mind the Davidic covenant. We're going to read it briefly so we can understand how this develops this. Because the Bible takes some of these themes and, and, and chews on it and adds to it and develops it and teases it out. And so, 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is that great passage where God makes an everlasting covenant with David for a king. The scenario is that David has just volunteered to build a house for God. And even though Nathan the prophet thought that was a fine idea, the Lord says no. No. But I'll make a house for you. And the same play on words for house, a house you live in, and house, a dynasty, works in Hebrew and in English. And in verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are lift fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who will come after you, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so in Psalm 110, we have a couple clues linking it with this, that forever language of verse 4. And here, this rule from Zion 
Now in 2 Samuel 7, even though it has Christ ultimately in view, Solomon is the one in view. We know that because whoever this king is, he's going to sin. He's going to need discipline. That can't be Christ. And the one who builds a house for God is Solomon. He builds a temple. And so what the covenant God made with David promises is this. Your dynasty will not break. You will constantly have a descendant of yours from your own body genetically on your throne. Your kingdom will not end. And that can play out one of two ways. Either David's got a son who has 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 a son world without end on men. Or turn to Psalm 2. What, what becomes clear as the Bible chews on this, and this passage in 2 Samuel 7 gets a lot of treatment in the Old Testament, is that there's a growing expectation for a special son, a special one who's coming, a special David descendant. And so already by the time we get to Psalm 110, this localized focus of someone unique, someone special is coming. And Psalm 2 uses all that language we just read. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his fury and terrify them, speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. See that language from 2 Samuel 7? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so Psalm 2, taking the language of the Davidic covenant, tying together sonship, I'll be a father, he'll be to me a son, kingship, and now messiahhood are brought together. And Psalm 110, building on the back of that, takes even further. Now, not only is this one the son, the one to whom the father is a father and he is the son, this one is divine. And he'll be enthroned. And despite the fact that he is ruling, he is, is waiting for his kingdom to come in full, he is still exercising rule. And that's really the world we live in now. With a mighty scepter. And notice from Psalm 2 as well. In Revelation 19, Jesus holding this scepter, a, a picture of authority and rule. A king's scepter. But I want to notice point three here. That this rule now is a contested rule. He's ruling in the presence, in the midst of your enemies, amidst the, re the rebellion and, there should be an ampersand there, and contention of his enemies. And that, that is the world we live in. We live in the world where the Messiah King has been enthroned. He has been raised up to heaven. He's been given the highest seat of authority. He's been given the name above all names. And yet he is not ruling as he one day will. Now he has enemies. Now there is resistance. Now there is... Um, conflict. There will come a day where he comes in power and that will end. This is the world we live in now. This is the world where the Messiah awaits his enemies to be made a footstool. Just like David, running around for 40 years, exercising some of the prerogatives of his king, but not all of them 
awaiting his kingdom amidst enemies. That that is the world we live in. That's how we make sense of that. How is Jesus king and yet all this is going on? Well, because he is the enthroned, inaugurated king, but he's not the king of the earth as he will be. His will is being done. He is carrying out his good purposes. But he still has enemies, and they still resist him. They still create conflict. So he's told to sit, he's told to rule, and in verse 3, receive your people. Receive your people. And here this is passive, whereas the Lord says to the Messiah, the king, I want you to sit and I want you to rule. Here, he's being told what will happen to him. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, and the dew of your youth will be yours. He will receive his people. I'm just going to notice quickly three things here. First, his subjects are voluntary subjects. You notice that? Most kings get subjects by conquest. Through an exercise of power, they hold on to their kingship by threatening the sword. Here, your people will offer themselves freely. Literally, your people will be a free will offering. I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I believe in divine election and predestination, but I also believe that nobody is a servant of Christ who doesn't choose to be one, who doesn't, of his own accord, choose to follow Christ. These subjects of his are not people constrained, not forced, they're not robots. They freely give themselves to the Messiah. And again, in this side of the New Covenant, we learn that as well. There are some religions that want to make converts by force. Sadly, at times, even in the history of the Christian church, the Crusades were an example of trying to make people converts by force, the Inquisition. We recognize that that is not right. But we call people to faith in Christ. We call people to offer themselves as a living sacrifice and a free will offering. This is the language that echoes um, Judges 5.2, where Deborah, in putting together an army, says the leaders took the lead in Israel and all the people offered themselves willingly. And this is why when the gospel call is made, it is, not, it is made as an appeal. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This psalm predicts there will be a great, great son of David who is greater than David, who is greater than angels, who is seated at the right hand of God. It predicts that he, he will cease from work, enter his throne. It predicts that he will have enemies who will contest him, that he will rule. And it predicts that his people will be those who choose to be his people. And the amazing news is that offer is still here now. There's going to come a day where Jesus comes in power and the choice is done. There, there will come a day where Jesus takes that rod and smashes the nations. But today is, at least not yet, that day. And so I just want to pause and, 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 and ask you to consider, have you chosen to present yourself to Christ? Have you chosen to become part of his army, part of his people? The choice is there. He, he died, he, he's ascended, he's paid for our sin, he has done everything for us that we could not do, and yet he will not externally force you to become part of his kingdom, but he invites you. His people are those who choose to be his people. Second, notice how many there are of peoples. They're voluntary subjects, many peoples. 
Now, this is probably the hardest part of the, this psalm so far to translate. In fact, my ESV even has a little footnote. The meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. And that's always a time to go, uh-oh. And thankfully, I was able to look at some commentaries and some work done by my old Hebrew professor, Dr. Barak. And it appears that the best reading of this is the second part of verse 3. Is, from the womb of the morning, as the dew, your youth to you. That's clear, right? Um, but it's a Hebrewism. It's a Hebrewism used in 2 Samuel 17, 12. It's, it's a picture of numerousness. When you go out, you ever go out in the morning before the sun's come up and you see the dew on the grass, how many droplets of dew are there? They're uncountable. In 2 Samuel um, 17, 12, we don't need to turn there. Speaking of surrounding and capturing someone, we will be to them, they say, as the dew of the morning. Everywhere. And so as speaking of the Messiah's people, his army, Yahweh says, your youths, the youths of your army, will be to you as the dew of the morning. They're going to be numerous. And, and again, that's something we find. Turn, turn to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at two passages in Revelation as we, as we draw to a close here. To see this, this Psalm 110, a thousand years before Jesus, predicting that the Messiah would, would be divine, predicting that he would be enthroned at the right hand of the Father, predicting that he would have a contested rule. His people would freely give themselves and that there would be so many of them. Revelation chapter 5. We are now at the end of the story. We can see this most clearly. We're just going to read the first 10 verses. This is the scene in heaven. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. And sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of this tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And behold, the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Truly, the use of your army will be as numerous as the dew. One more thing to notice. Keep your thumb in Revelation. Keep your thumb in Revelation. One last thing to notice in the first three verses of Psalm 110. These are holy people. They are dressed in holy attire. Literally the garments of priests. We'll get to that more priesthood next week. These people who have turned up voluntarily to serve the Messiah, to form part of his army, they're holy. 
Now, they're holy, we know, this side of the cross, because they've been cleansed. They're also holy, if you've been focusing on our sermon series, because all those who have the Spirit of God are driven by God to purify themselves as he is pure. God's people serve him. God's people want to be like him. God's people are a holy people. If you're a Christian, God has called you to holiness. He's given you everything you need. He's given you his promises, his word, his spirit, his people. This army of the Lord is a volunteer army. They're not conscripted. It's a numerous army, and it is a holy army. And in just bringing this to a close, I want you to listen to this passage in Revelation 19, picturing the end. Because what is in view here, and what we'll see next week, is, is that while the Messiah's rule is, is contested now, he will come in power. He will come and dash his enemies. And Revelation 19 gives us that picture of that occurring. Let's, let's just read Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. And it's just amazing. Predicted in Psalm 110, and here predicted again. In Revelation 19, this has not happened yet, but it is our great hope, and it will happen. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written which no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. There's that scepter again. And he will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and the Lord of lords. So that's the first half of Psalm 110. And here's the thing. If, if you know the Lord, if, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ by faith, this is the best news. It's great news. Your great God and Savior, your high priest, has been exalted. He is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. He has the highest position. He has the name above all names. He has completed his work. He awaits his enemy's utter defeat. He is ruling, and his people are gathering. And he will come, and he will come and destroy his enemies. But if you don't know the Lord, this might be the most terrible news ever. If you're here today, and, and you're God's enemy, if you've not chosen to bow your knee voluntarily to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will bow your knee one day. It will be broken. All will confess every tongue, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The New Testament's emphatic. Jesus' victory will be total. Hell will not be filled with people cursing him. Hell will be filled with broken enemies who did not freely choose to come to their Messiah. So this is great news for God's people, and this is terrifying news, frankly, for his enemies. And the invitation is there to, to be one of his people, to present yourself to him. We're going to we're close in a song. I just would encourage you to, the, the offer's on the table. Be reconciled with God. Become part of his people. Don't be an object of his wrath. But you will bow the knee. You will confess. You will honor him one way or another. Let's sing before the throne of God above. Please stand.